بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respects listeners assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh once again we gather for the monthly tafsir of the holy quran having started from the end of the quran beginning with suratul nas we now find ourselves with the 90th surah of the quran suratul balad suratul balad is also known as surat la uqsim taking the name of the surah from the first words of the surah and more famously it's known as suratul balad meaning the city again taken from a verse of the quran and the city is a reference to makkah al-mukarramah by which allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears in the surah as he also swears by makkah in other surahs of the quran so this is suratul balad also known as surat la uqsim and it's the 90th surah of the quran and this is what we will be reading and learning about today inshallah before i continue la uqsim is a very early makkan surah revealed in the early days of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's mission in makkah and some ulama many ulama believe that in order of revelation it was actually the 35th surah of the quran to be revealed so let's begin bismillahir rahmanir rahim la uqsimu bihadha albalad i'll give a very simple literal translation of the surah and then we will study its meaning la uqsimu bihadha albalad nay I swear by this city. وَأَنْتَ حِلٌّ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ Whilst you are lawful in this city. وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ By the parent and the offspring. or by parents and offspring 
لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدٍ Indeed, we have created man in distress. أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ Does he think that no one will have power over him? يَقُولُ أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدًا He says, I have spent abundant wealth. أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّمْ يَرَهُ أَحَدٍ Does he think that no one has seen him? أَلَمْ نَجْعَلْ لَهُ عَيْنَيْنِ have we not created, have we not made for him two eyes? وَلِسَانَ وَشَفَتَيْنِ And a tongue and two lips. وَهَدَيْنَاهُ النَّجْدَيْنِ And have we not guided him to the two clear paths? فَلَقْتَحْمَ الْعَقَبَةِ So why doesn't he scale the ascent? وَمَا أَدْرَاكَمَ الْعَقَبَةِ And what will tell you of what the ascent is? فَكُّ رَقَبَةِ The emancipation of a slave. أَوْ إِطْعَامٌ فِي يَوْمٍ ذِي مَسْغَبَةِ Or the feeding in a day of hunger. يَتِيمًا ذَا مَقْرَبَةً An orphan of relation أو مسكين ذَا مَقْرَبَةً Or a poor or a destitute ذَا مَقْرَبَةً of the dust ثُمَّ كَانَ مِنْ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَتَوَاسَوا بِالصَّبْرِ وَتَوَاسَوا بِالْمَرْحَمَةً then he is of those who have believed and who have counseled each other to patience and who have counseled each other to mercy. These are the pe- these are the companions of the right. And those who have disbelieved in our signs, they are the companions of the left, or the people of the left. Over them is a closed fire. That's a very simple and literal translation of Surah Al-Balad. What is the meaning and message of this surah. As I've mentioned before, we always need to understand the context of any surah, of any verse of the Qur'an in order to fully appreciate and understand its meaning and message. And since Surah Al-Balad was revealed in the very early days of the Prophet Wasallam's prophethood in Makkah Al-Mukarramah, the people who were being addressed, the topics that were being tackled, and the message that was being delivered, although ultimately it, will be, it would be universal and eternal, its initial delivery, its initial setting and context was Makkah and its people, and its 
peculiar and individual circumstances at the time. Now, in the early days of the Prophet wasallam, stay in Mecca, there were no laws. The Muslims were very few in number. Well, there were very few laws. The Muslims were very few in number. They could not really gather for congregational worship. There was no real sense of a community that would be governed by communal laws. Rather, these were scattered individuals, many of them weak, oppressed, and really unable to do much, and often who were persecuted by the Quraysh. In that setting, the Quraysh, the Prophet ﷺ, was initially attempting to educate the Quraysh on, very sim- on the very simple and salient points of Islam, namely, prophethood from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah communicates to his creation through the messengers. Also, this belief and attitude to life that they had of wanton abandon, of no concern or fear, no preparation for any life after death. They genuinely believed and lived accordingly. They believed that in here, illa wa wa as Allah quotes them in the Quran, that there is nothing but this worldly life. We die and we live, and we are not ones to be resurrected. So the Quraysh, along with being indignant about being told to abandon the worship of idols, something else which they could not get their head around and which they refused to accept from Rasulullah wasallam, and which he was actually trying to educate them on and make them see the light of, was the fact that this were, this life on earth is not the only life or period of existence. There was something before, and there is definitely something afterwards to which we are heading. But the Quraysh, the people of Mecca primarily, they rejected any notion, any belief of life after death. So the also, since they were persecuting the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims, although they nominally believed in Allah, Ultimately, their belief and pride was in their own power and strength. And so, many of the Makkan surahs speak about the messengers of Allah and their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And their relationship with their opponents throughout history. In the previous surah, which we did last month, Surah Al-Shams, the surah ended with the topic of the people of Thamud. كَذَّبَتْ ثَمُودُ بِالْتَغْوَاهَا إِذِنْ بَعْثَ أَشْقَاهَا So Allah spoke about the people of Thamud, a people, a nation, a civilization that the Arabs of Mecca and its surroundings were well aware of. And Allah reminds them that they were mightier and far stronger, far more capable than you and more numerous than you are. And yet, 
when they rejected the messengers of Allah and their message, when they persecuted the messengers of Allah and their followers, ultimate doom befell them. So in comparison to them, O people of Quraysh, you are extremely weak. If your opposition continues to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and if you persist in your ways, then the same fate will befall you as befell these nations, whose dwellings you have seen, whose stories and accounts you are well aware of and you are familiar with. Since Allah always spoke to them about those nations that they were familiar with. So these are some of the themes of the Makkan Surahs. And since, as I said earlier on, there were very few laws to be followed, even of prayer, of zakah, of pilgrimage, or any of the other detailed social, religious, communal laws that were introduced later in uh, Muslim life in Medina. Initially, the Qur'an and the Prophet ﷺ focused on Tawheed on inviting the Quraysh to the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to the abandoning of the worship of idols. So not all of these themes are covered in Surah Al-Balad, but some of these topics are addressed. So I've gone through the simple translation. Let's go through some of the verses in detail and we'll learn more. First of all, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again swears by something. Sometimes he swears by himself, sometimes he swears by an object in his creation. Sometimes it may be simple, natural phenomena. Sometimes a person or a group of people who are great. Sometimes the object or the thing by which Allah swears may apparently not mean much. But when we reflect on that particular thing, and we ponder over it, then we realize the truly great significance and the greatness of that thing by which Allah swears, and to which he is inviting our attention and our reflection. So the first verse which in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by something, Allah says in this, in this verse, لَا أُقْسِمُ بِهَذَا الْبَلَدِ Nay. La nay. It's, it's to grab and arrest the attention of the listeners. Beginning with the negative. La uqsimu bihad al-balad. I do swear by this city. Wa antahillum bihad al-balad. Whilst you are halal in this city. I'll explain that in a moment. But here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by two things. Primarily Allah swears by this city. And they, the Quraysh, knew exactly what Allah was referring to. The sacred and blessed and secure city of Makkah al-Mukarramah. لا أقسم بهذا البلد Nay, I swear by this city. Allah swears by Makkah in other verses of the Qur'an. وَالتِّينَ وَالزَّيْتُونِ وَطُورِ السِّينِينَ وَهَذَا الْبَلَدِ الْأَمِينَ By the fig. And the olive. And by Mount Sinai. And this secure city. And I've explained before that swearing by the fig and the olive is ultimately a reference to 
Baytul Maqdis, Jerusalem and its surroundings. So Allah is in effect swearing by three places. By the fig and the olive, this is a reference to Baytul Maqdis, Jerusalem and its surroundings. So Allah swears by Baytul Maqdis, Jerusalem and its vicinity. And by Mount Sinai, and the secure city. So why does Allah swear by Jerusalem, by Mount Sinai, and by this secure city in Surah Al-Din? Simple. These three places were blessed with the presence of many of Allah's chosen messengers and prophets. It was a point of contact between the Creator and the creation. These places were the locations, the spots, where the chosen servants of Allah tread, where they lived, where they walked, where they bore the message of Allah, and they also suffered for the sake of Allah. So Jerusalem, Mount Sinai, where Prophet Musa salam received the revelation and spoke to Allah and Makkah Mukarramah. So here too, Allah swears only by the city of Makkah. La uqsimu al-balad. Nay, I swear by this city, the secure city of Makkah. Makkah has many virtues and we could spend an eternity discussing the blessed nature, the sacred nature, and the virtues of Makkah al-Mukarramah. But when the Quraysh, as Muslims, we can understand the virtue and the beauty of Makkah. But for the Quraysh, remember, originally and primarily, this message was for the Quraysh. So what was it for them to understand about the city of Makkah? What was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala telling them to reflect on and to ponder over? First of all, the Quraysh knew that their position, as I've explained in Surah Al-Fil and Surah Quraysh, the Quraysh knew that numerically and in terms of ultimate wealth and power, they were dwarfed by the other powers and tribes in the region. And yet... They enjoyed great prestige, far beyond their numbers, far beyond their wealth and their size and status and their political power or their military strength. Makkah was recognized. Makkah was able to send some of its leading citizens as ambassadors and they were received as diplomats in the capitals of the surrounding empires in Abyssinia, in Byzantine Rome, and Sassanid Persia. Why did they enjoy such a status? And why did all the Arab tribes of Arabia pay homage to them? Why did they respect them? They enjoyed all these trade routes and great safety. Why? It was all out of respect for the city of Makkah al-Mukarramah. And Makkah was a miracle even then, as I explained last month, uh, uh, last week actually, that... Makkah, when Ibrahim alayhi salam, when the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam settled his baby son, Ismail alayhi salam, and his mother, just two individuals, a mother and her baby, in the barren valley of Makkah. There was not a blade of grass, not a single blade of vegetation. There wasn't an 
an animal to be seen or a bird to be seen in the air, there was not a drop of water. It was barren land between towering mountains. There, the Prophet Ibrahim settled his family. And he prayed for them. And it was the effect of his prayer, the blessing of his prayer, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answered his dua, answered his prayer, and blessed Makkah and allowed it to thrive in the way that it did. In that barren land, Allah reminds the Quraysh, that have we not made the haram, the sanctuary of Mecca? Have we not made it a secure and safe sanctuary? To which the fruits of every provision and every sustenance are brought from everywhere. As a provision from ourselves. In another verse, do they not reflect on the fact that they are secure? And yet, people all around them are being snatched. So, for the Makkans, in the city of Makkah, there was, there was a sanctuary, there was great safety, there was great respect. People traveled and paid homage. All of this was the blessing and the virtue of Makkah al Mukarramah. But the surroundings, there was anarchy, there was lawlessness, there was no rule. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in various verses of the Qur'an, such as in Surah Al-Fil, Surah Quraysh, and elsewhere, Allah reminds the people of Makkah, the Quraysh, of his immense bounties and favors to them. And here, Allah swears by the same city, the secure and safe city of Makkah al-Mukarramah. Furthermore, the Arabs, despite all their differences, they all regarded Mecca to be a sacred place. So it may seem rather odd, but throughout the year they would be warring, battling with each other, and yet in the sacred months, and especially in the season of pilgrimage, people would travel from all over Arabia. Enemies would see each other, but would leave each other alone. All arms were put to rest in Mecca. The Animals were not to be harmed. The vegetation was not to be harmed. People were not to be harmed. And there was supposed to be respect for everyone. And the Arabs actually honoured that. Their great fairs, their great gatherings, their great consultations took place in Makkah All this power and prestige was beyond the true position and the true wealth and power of the Quraysh. So this was Allah's great favour to them. And they knew that. So Allah embarrasses them, Allah shames them, Allah reminds them that this is the place where you live and whose fruits you enjoy. And yet, you rebel against the same Allah who provided all this for you. And not only that, but his chosen messenger, whom hitherto you accepted and you recognized as being honest and trustworthy and truthful, and you had no objection against him. All of a sudden, when he invites you to that same Allah, you turn against him, you oppose him, you persecute him. And this is what Allah refers to in the next verse. Nay, I swear by the city whilst you are halal. Hillun meaning you are halal. You are lawful in this city. What does that mean, you are lawful? It refers to two things. 
It refers to the reality on the ground then in Mecca. And it refers to a prophecy. The reality on the, in the, on the ground was that the Quraysh, they respected the Kaaba and the Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the sacred mosque, the sacred masjid. People would travel from all over Arabia and they would find peace and sanctuary in the city of Mecca. Enemies would pass by each other and yet they would do no harm to one another. And the Arabs, they avoided a number of things simply because they feared that people would speak about them. So they would often say, we refuse to do this lest the Arabs, and by the Arabs they meant all the remaining Arabs of the Arabian Peninsula, lest the Arabs say this of the Quraysh. So they had this position of prestige, of honor, which everyone recognized because they were the custodians of the Masjid, of the Holy House, of the Kaaba, of Allah. So they were very mindful of this position and of this prestige. So the Quraysh, they harmed no one. They upheld that law of respecting, of sanctifying, of granting security and a pass to even their enemies in the season of Hajj, in the season of pilgrimage and Umrah, and whenever anyone would visit Makkah al-Mukarramah. And as I explained again two weeks ago, this is a meaning of haram. Haram means forbidden, but it also means sacred. So a thing could be forbidden because of its terrible nature or impure nature. Something could be forbidden and out of bounds because of its beauty, its greatness, its sanctity, its holiness. So this is the haram nature of Makkah al-Mukarramah. The Arabs recognized that. People were not to be harmed. Even their enemies were not to be harmed. So they considered the, their enemies to be haram in Makkah. They considered other tribes to be haram. Everyone considered everyone to be haram, meaning forbidden, out of bounds, with an aura of sanctity about them, whilst they were in Mecca. And yet, the Quraysh, who because of the sanctity of Mecca al-Mukarramah, respected, gave peace, gave security and sanctuary to everybody else. They can, and they considered everybody haram, the messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they considered halal. In that, they would harm him. They would taunt him. They would persecute him. And that was a travesty. This is why six years later, well, many, six years after the hijrah, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam traveled with approximately 1400 sahaba to Makkah al-Mukarramah in order to perform the Umrah. He was prevented from entering the city and he had to camp at a location approximately six miles from Makkah known as Hudaybiyah. There they waited, negotiating their entry into Makkah al-Mukarramah. The Quraysh forbade them entry. And what was maddening at the time for the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum and what enraged them is that this was unprecedented. The Quraysh had never done this to anybody. In all of their tribal wars and battles, 
In all of their squabbles during the days of ignorance, all their enemy tribes were allowed free entry into Makkah al-Mukarramah. Their quarrels, their wars, their battles were out of the city. Out of the seasons of pilgrimage, out of the sacred months, the Al-Ashhur al-Hurum. But when he came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Muslims in the sixth year of Hijrah, they did something unprecedented, which is they forbade the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from entering the city. So what they did later, they had been doing throughout the Prophet's stay in Mecca. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which is, they considered Makkah to be haram, they considered the masjid to be haram, they con- they even respected the hurmah and the sanctity of their enemies in, when they came to Makkah. But when he came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they considered him halal. It was open season, they had a free ticket to taunt him, to throw jibes at him, to persecute him, to harm him and his followers. And the only reason they physically didn't harm him was, as I've explained on many occasions, at least for the first 10 years of his prophethood, because of the balance of power and the protection of his clan, Banu Hashim. But as soon as he lost the protection of Banu Hashim, how did that happen? Because Abu Talib, the leader of Banu Hashim, one of his uncles, as soon as he died in the 50th year of the Prophet Wasallam's life, and 10 years after his prophethood, the leadership of Banu Hashim went over to his bitter and staunch enemy, implacable enemy, Abu Lahab, who was also his uncle. So when Abu Lahab assumed leadership of the clan of Banu Hashim, he withdrew that protection from his own nephew, from a member of his own clan. As a result of which, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had to seek protection elsewhere. This is when the Quraysh realized that we can physically harm him. And this was the point when they did attempt to, as Allah mentions in the Quran, either imprison him or even kill him. So they considered Mecca and its people and its visitors to be haram, meaning sacred. But they considered the genuinely haram and sacred individual, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to be halal. So this is what Allah refers to, لا أقسم بهذا البلد وأنتحلم بهذا البلد. Again, this is to shame the Quraysh, that I swear by this secure city, which Allah has given you, and in the same secure city, I swear by it, whilst you, O Messenger of Allah, are considered halal in this city by the Quraysh. And as I said, this was a reflection of the reality on the ground. The second meaning is a prophecy. Eight eight years after prophethood, many, many years beyond the revelation of this verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was to allow the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to enter the city of Mecca as a conqueror. And he did raise arms, or he carried arms into Mecca. But... It was only for a moment. And on that day as well, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said that let there be no arms, let there be no fighting, let there be no battle in Makkah al-Mukarramah. And if anyone says that the Messenger of Allah bore arms in Makkah, then tell them that Allah made 
the Prophet made the city halal for the Prophet for a moment, and then Allah restored its sanctity and its hurma, its prohibition. So this is again a reference and a prophecy to that. And that's what happened. Rasulullah was halal in Makkah al-Mukarramah in the sense that what was forbidden to others was momentarily made lawful for Rasulullah And yet on that day what happened? This was a city that persecuted him and drove him out, that killed his followers and fought pitched battles with him for years on end. And eventually, when the Prophet ﷺ entered the city as a conqueror, following the violation of their own peace treaty by the Quraysh themselves and the, the allies of the Quraysh, what was the end result? Rasulullah ﷺ asked them, that what do you expect of me today? And many of them feared, and some of the companions in their bitterness and in their anger, were also threatening to harm people. And yet Rasulullah said, they use the words, which means today is the day of the great battle. The Prophet changed one letter, and he said, nay, no. Today, al-yawm yawm al-marhamah, today is a day of mercy and compassion. And the Quraysh asked him, they stood there, heads bowed before him, in submission, knowing they were vanquished and defeated. Rasulullah said to them, what do you expect of me? They had all kinds of fears, but he reassured them, he assuaged their fears, and he said to them, today I will say to you, what Yusuf alayhi salam said to his brothers, لا تثريب عليكم اليوم يغفر الله لكم وهو أرحم الراحمين. This day there will be no retribution against you. Allah may forgive your sins, and He is the most merciful of those who are merciful and compassionate. So, even though they considered him halal, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam did not treat them in the same manner. He did not reciprocate that attitude and behavior. So this is the meaning of the first two verses. لا أقسم بهذا البلد بهذا البلد. Nay, I swear by the city whilst you are halal, whilst you are lawful in the city. That's the meaning of lawful. Allah then says, by the father and the son, by the parent and the offspring. This is a reference to man in general, or to the Prophet Adam alayhi salam and his progeny and his children. Like I said earlier on, right at the beginning, sometimes Allah swears by something which apparently on the surface does not seem to be very significant. Allah swears by man. And Allah swears by the offspring of man. Allah swears by the parent and the offspring. But this is connected to the next verse. Allah says, وَوَالِدٍ وَمَا وَلَدٍ By the parent and by the offspring. لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدٍ Indeed, we have created man in affliction, in distress, in toil, in misery. 
What does this mean? And this is why the oath on the far on the parents on the offspring is connected to the next verse. It invites us to think about our lives, our beginning, where we have come from, how we have come, and the reality of our life. Allah says, by by the parent and the offspring, indeed we have created man in affliction, in misery. In struggle, life is a struggle. Life is toil and turmoil. Life is not about peace or bliss or felicity and joy. That's the reality of life. That's the nature of life. That's the primal rule of life. And that's evident from the very first moment. Allah says in a verse of the Quran, His mother bore him in difficulty. And she delivered him in difficulty. Pregnancy is not easy. Even from the very first moment of conception, life is a struggle. How the fetus grows and develops in the womb. All the perils, all the dangers. And that is a miracle in itself, how he actually manages to survive. The pains of conception, the pains of pregnancy... And then ultimately the great pains and pangs of labor. It takes so much to bring a life into this world. And that child, that baby, is fighting, is struggling, is resisting. It's toiling from the very first moment of its life. In the womb and out of the womb. How that child grows, surrounded by danger. But nothing is easy. That pitfalls, dangers, illnesses, sickness, injuries. Nothing's ever perfect. And this is why in some places high mortality rates. And even when a person successfully grows up, man always think children want to be adults. They can't wait to grow up. Adults want to go back to childhood. That's why there's a very beautiful poem, صَغِيرٌ يَوَدُّ الْكِبَرَ وَكَبِيرٌ يَوَدُّ الصِّغَرَ وَخَالٍ يَشْتَهِ عَمَلًا وَذُو عَمَلٍ بِهِ قَدْ ضَجْرًا وَذُو مَالٍ فِي تَعْبٍ وَفِي تَعْبٍ مَنْ افْتَقَرَ فَهَلْ حَارُوا مَعَ الْأَقْدَارِ أَمْ هُمْ حَيَّرُ الْقَدَرَ That صَغِيرٌ يَوَدُّ الْكِبَرَ The young wishes to become old. And the old wishes to become young. And the unemployed seeks work. And the one of work and employment is frustrated with his work. And the one of wealth is in fatigue. 
and the one who is poor is also in fatigue. fatigue. So are they bewildered by the fate and the decree of Allah? Or have they made the decree of Allah confused and bewildered? What do we want? The young wish to be old, the old wish to be young, the unemployed wish to be employed, wish to be unemployed, the unemployed wish to be employed, and the wealthy are in distress, and the poor are in distress. So ultimately, what do we want? Are we confused by our lots in life, and by the decree of Allah, and Qadr, or have we confused Qadr itself? That's just the poem. So young wish to become old, and the old... Everyone's always looking ahead. Everyone's always looking elsewhere. They think they have it hard. And the grass is always green on the other side. They always think others are in bliss and in joy and in happiness. We're never happy. But the reality is, and Allah reminds us of this, this life on earth is not one to make paradise. Man cannot have eternal bliss on earth. This whole life is one of toil and struggle. In another verse of the Quran, Allah says it beautifully, Ya ayyuhal insan, innaka kadihun ila rabbika kadhan famulaqi. O man, you are toiling a great toil towards your Lord, then you shall meet him. This whole life is one of struggle. Forget man, even a seed which sprouts. And grows into a single leaf, stalk and stem. See how it has to struggle and fight its way through the soil. And rise. That's a single seed. That's true for any animal, any living thing. And it's true for human beings. And the strange thing is, in the whole animal kingdom, the most vulnerable are human babies. Of all the mammals... The most vulnerable are human babies. We, human babies need the most care and attention. We all, humans develop the latest. We take the longest to fully form physically and mature and even mentally. So, this is the vulnerability of a human being. Life is a struggle. We seek to remove our very nature. We seek to fight our very nature. Our very nature is one of struggle. That's how, that's what life is. And we would not be able to appreciate joy, the few moments of fleeting happiness and joy, if we weren't in misery. If we were happy all the time, we'd be miserable. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala swears by the parent and the offspring. And the reason for swearing by the parent and the offspring is to attract our attention and invite us to reflect on this reality. That think about your existence from the very first moment all the way till death. Life is a struggle. Life is a test. Life is full of misery. And subhanAllah, if you, if we were to just reflect on the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Muslims believe he is Allah's chosen servant. He is the most beloved of the whole of creation to Allah. And yet, if we were to reflect momentarily on his life, subhanAllah, Prophet wasallam was born, his father had already passed away before his birth. He was born an orphan. 
He lived with his mother for very few years. At the age of six, his mother passed away. Imagine this young child standing at his mother's grave, witnessing her death and burial. No father, no mother, no brother, no sister. No siblings. He was alone. And this is how he grew up. He then went into the care and custody of his grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, who lived with him for only two years before he died at the age of eight. Then he went into the care of Abu Talib. But Abu Talib, although he was noble and the leader of Banu Hashim as a clan, as an individual, he wasn't extremely wealthy. He was of moderate means. And he had children to look after. So the Prophet ﷺ, in order to become self-sufficient and not be a burden on his uncle, the Prophet ﷺ began working at the young tender age of 10 or at least by 12. He would herd flocks of sheep and goats. He became a shepherd at the age of 12, possibly even younger. And this is how he lived, this is how he worked throughout his life. Then, subhanAllah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam married. When he married, he married at the age of 25. And he wasn't too a young virgin. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam married a woman 15 years his senior, who was twice widowed with children from both marriages. That was his life on earth. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam remained faithful to her. All the way for 25 years of marriage till the age of 50. And during that time, he did not marry any other woman. And at the age of 50, in one year, within a short interval, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam lost his uncle Abu Talib, his protector, his guardian, his father figure for the past 42 years. And he lost his wife. He lost his protection, as I said earlier. And even before that, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had children. Asim, he died in infancy. Abdullah, he died in infancy. And towards the end of his life, when Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had Ibrahim radiyallahu anhu from Maria Qibtiya radiyallahu anha, he buried him also. He did not live for very long. And of four daughters, Zainab, Ruqiyah, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima, radiyallahu anhum, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam witnessed the death of every one of his children, sons and daughters, with the exception of Fatima, radiyallahu anha. And even of Fatima, radiyallahu anha, he was told by Allah that she will die a few months after your death, and we learned that she died six months later, and of his whole family, she was the first one to meet him. That was his life. He saw death, he saw bereavement. And all of these family members died of natural causes, never in battle, except for, uh, well, Hamza radiallahu anha, he lost his uncle in the battle of Uhud. But these immediate family members, his sons, his daughters, with the exception of Fatima radiallahu anha, his parents... His beloved uncle Abu Talib, all of them died natural deaths. So throughout his life, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam saw death, suffering, bereavement, and poverty. He was an orphan. 
So if anyone's life would have been Jannah on earth, would have been bliss on earth, paradise on earth, it would have been Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But that's the nature of life. It's a struggle. As Allah says in that other verse, Ya ayyuhal insanu innaka kadihun ila rabbika kadhan fumulaqi. O man, you are toiling to your Lord, a great toiling. Then you shall meet him. And here, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي كَبَدٍ By the parent and by the offspring, we have created man in affliction, in misery. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَيَحْسَبُ أَلَّنْ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ Does he think that no one will have power over him? يَقُولُ أَهْلَكْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدًا he says, I have spent abundant wealth. Does he think that no one has seen him? These three verses speak about man's failure to look ahead and think about his accountability before Allah. This is a reminder to man that his life is not without purpose. His existence is not aimless. He is here for a reason, in a particular manner. And he is heading towards something. He is toiling and struggling towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then for mulaqi, when he meets Allah, what will happen then? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will hold him to account. Man expects a lot. And this is why he says, I have spent great wealth. Meaning, in life, in order to get what he wants, man spends his wealth. This is his currency. This is his means to get and secure what he wants. And yet he still doesn't find happiness. This is it. He spends so much. He'll spend money on cars, on homes, on clothes, on belongings, on material possessions, on friends. There's no true altruism. When a person spends, there's always an equation. We spend in order to get something. If we treat people, if we treat people, or we give them a gift, there is still an equation in the background. And the reasoning is, if I give him a gift, if I treat him, if I treat him well, if I honour him, if I entertain him, then it may be at a cost to me. But what will that money buy? What will that expenditure buy? It will hopefully buy his or her love, his or her attention. It will secure his or her favour in the future. So, even if we give a gift, even if we treat someone, even if we entertain and host someone, there's always some reasoning behind it. This is why there's a difference between sadaqah and hadiyah. In hadiyah, it's a gift from one individual to the other without any motive of reward. Primarily. The primary motive is not reward. But in sadaqah, the only motive should be the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his reward. 
There's no personal gain. There's no calculation that in the future I'm buying myself some favour. So man spends a lot. We spend a lot. We spend on ourselves. We spend on our others. Or on others. And it's all this expenditure is to secure something. Is to grab something. Is to win something. And yet we're never happy. We're always still searching. So man thinks he can spend in order to receive in this world. And this is what the message of the Quran here is. That you do not spend, you do not do what you do in order to receive the reward in this world. So don't spend, don't work hard and then look around you for the results. Because life is full of struggle. Life is full of disappointment. Life is full of betrayal. Your true reward that you should seek is in the akhirah, in the hereafter. And also when man spends, as soon as man has wealth, wealth leads to rebellion. Wealth leads to arrogance. Wealth leads to delusions of grandeur and power. And when that happens, man thinks that with his wealth, he can buy his way. Through everything, to anything he wants. And in that delusion, wealth makes a person delusional. It really does. And the perfect example of that is in Surah Al-Kahf. As I've explained on numerous occasions, today's Friday, we are encouraged to read Surah Al-Kahf on the Friday. And Surah Al-Kahf contains a number of stories, four main stories. One of those stories is about the rich man and the poor man. And the rich man was taking the poor man on the tour of his estates and of his belongings and his possessions. And what did he say? Seeing all his wealth, seeing his grand estates and his lands, his orchards, he said to his companion, Do you know what? I think that none of this will ever perish. This is everlasting. Then straight away, Allah quotes him as saying, وَمَا أَظُنُّ السَّاعَةَ قَائِمَةً And I do not think that the final hour will come, or the resurrection will occur. وَلَئِنْ رُدِدْتُ إِلَىٰ رَبِّي لَأَجْدَنَّ خَيْرًا مِنْهَا مُنْقَلَبًا And if I am ever returned to my Lord, then I will find an even better return there than here. So we read these three verses in quick succession. And before that he said to him, this is three things he said, before that he said to him, He said to the poor man, do you know what? I am richer than you. I am greater and more abundant in wealth than you. And I am mightier in my Numbers of people and friends and colleagues that I can call on. And then he mentioned these three other things. So he mentioned four things in total. He prided himself on being richer, wealthier and more powerful than the poor companion. Then he said, I don't think any of this will perish. Then he said, I don't think that the final hour of judgment will ever occur. 
And then he said, If I am ever returned to my Lord, then I will find better there. Now, the la- none of that makes sense on the surface. Because, the, the, the last final part, because he says, I don't think there is a day of judgment. I don't think there is a reckoning. In fact, I don't think any of this will ever come to an end. So if none of that will come to an end, if his wealth and his life are everlasting, and because wealth makes us feel immortal, Woe be unto every defamer, detractor, taunter. He who accumulates wealth and enumerates it, counts it. He thinks his wealth will give him everlasting life. We actually believe wealth makes us delusional. It makes us believe that we are immortal. So, he said to look at the... So on the surface it doesn't make sense, but the Qur'an is the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's truly profound. In four sentences, in four short sentences and phrases, Allah gives us the reality of the delusional power of wealth and how it makes man delusional. And proud. And blind to reality. So because of his wealth, he first says to his companion, "Ana أَكْثَرُ مِنْكَ مَالًا I, I am greater than you in wealth. What does that give me? Power. وَعَزُّ نَفَرًا I am mightier in men than you are. Then he says, he doesn't stop there. He, then he says, you know what? Look around you. All these belongings, all these possessions and lands and estates of mine, they are everlasting, they are eternal. They are eternal, they will give me immortality. So he says, I don't think that any of this will perish. So it's everlasting, it's eternal, I am eternal, I am immortal. Then he says something else. He says, and I don't think that the final hour of judgments will come. But he just said already that this is eternal. So if the world and his possessions and belongings are eternal, how can the final hour of judgment come? But he's progressing in his delusion. This is it. It's a natural progression in his delusion. So he says, okay, let's argue for argument's sake. Let's concede that this isn't eternal and that it will perish. Fine. Let's argue that the final hour of judgment will come. I don't think it does, but fine. If you say it does, let's say it does. Then that's when he says the final part. He says, وَلَا إِلَىٰ رَبِّي if I am ever returned to my Lord, meaning if this is not everlasting, if I am not immortal, if I die, if this perishes, there is a final hour of judgment, the world comes to an end, there is a reckoning, and if for argument's sake, after all of these ifs, if I am ever returned to my Lord, if the truth is, Allah will give me more there than He's given me here. That's what wealth does. It makes a personal person delusional. If it makes him feel immortal and ultimately powerful, wealth buys everything. That's what we think. 
That's why a poet says, إِنَّ الْغَنِيَّ وَإِنْ تَكَلَّمَ بِالْخَطَأِ قَالُوا أَصَبْتَ وَصَدَّقُوا مَا قَالَ وَإِذَا الْفَقِيرُ أَصَابَ قَالُوا كُلُّهُمْ يَا هَذَا أَخْطَأْتَ وَقُلْتَ ضَلَالَ إِنَّ الدَّرَاهِمَ فِي الْمَجَالِسِ كُلِّهَا تَقْسُ الرِّجَالَ مَهَابَةً وَجَلَالًا فَهِيَ اللِّسَانُ لِمَنْ أَرَادَ فَصَاحَةً they all say, you've spoken the truth. وَصَدَّقُوا مَا قَالَ And they verify and attest to whatever he has said. Everyone says yes. Everyone's a sycophant and a groveller before a wealthy one. Then the poet continues. And when the poor person says something true and correct, they all still say to him, Oh you, you have committed an error. And you've said a thing of great deviation. Poet continues in the third line, Verily dirhams, silver coins, pounds, they cover and fill all men in gatherings with awe. In all gatherings, wealth fills men with awe. With fear and awe. فَهِيَ اللِّسَانُ لِمَنْ أَرَادَ فَصَاحَةً So they, meaning dirhams, are a tongue for anyone who wishes eloquence. And dirhams, meaning money. Money is a tongue for anyone who seeks eloquence. And money is a tongue. Money is a sword for anyone who seeks to battle. So, the wealthy does not have to say anything, just spend. The wealthy does not have to fight, just spend. Wealth fills people with awe and fear in all gatherings. And wealth buys the sycophancy and the love, apparently not love, but the sycophancy of and the submission of people around them. That's what we believe. And on the surface, that's what, that's what may happen. This is why wealth gives power and it makes a person delusional. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Man, يَقُولُ أَهْلَقْتُ مَالَ اللُّبَدَى He says, I have spent abundant wealth, but does he not realize, does he think that no one will overpower him? Does he think no one has seen him, what he does, what he is doing? أَيَحْسَبُ أَنَّ يَقْدِرَ عَلَيْهِ أَحَدٍ does he think that no one will overpower him? No one will find power over him? He says, I have spent abundant wealth. Does he think that no one has seen him? What he has done with his wealth? How he has spent it? Does he think there will be no accountability? Sayyidina Abu Barzah al-Aslami radiyallahu anhu, the companion, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhuma, both relate a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam recorded by Imam Tirmidhi in his sunan and by others. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, a man's feet will not shift from their place on the day of judgment until he has been interrogated and questioned about four things. One, his age, what did he do with his age, his whole life? Two, his youth, 
So although he will be questioned about his whole life, he will be specifically questioned about his youth. When a man or a woman is at the peak, when a human being is at the peak of their powers, of their strength, at the peak of their development, maybe not mental, but at least physical, when they are at the peak of their ability, what did they do? How did they spend their youth? So we will be questioned twice about our whole life and then specifically about our youth. It's like someone saying, sitting us down, interrogating us about what we did yesterday. And they are very suspicious about what we did between four and five o'clock. So they say, well, where were you yesterday? What did you do? So they interrogate us about our whole day, but then there is a very focused interrogation about that one hour between four and five. No, no, where were you then? What did you do? So we will be questioned about our whole life. And then we will be specifically questioned about our youth. How did we while away our youth? That's the second question. The third question is, وَعَنْ مَالِهِ مِنْ أَيْنَ اكْتَسَبَهُ وَفِيمَ أَنْفَقَهُ He will be questioned about his wealth. Whence did he acquire his wealth? And how did he spend it? How did he dispose of it? And the fourth thing, what did he do with the knowledge that he had? Whatever he learned, did he act on that knowledge and that learning or not? But the relevance to this discussion is that third question of the hadith. That... In some hadith, some narrations of this hadith, there are not four questions, but five questions. It's not a fifth question. The third one is just split into two. So the third one is about his wealth. Where did he acquire that wealth from? One question. The other question, how did he spend it? How did he dispose of it? We will be questioned about every penny. How we earned it, how we spent it. This is what Allah says here. Man says, I've spent a lot of wealth. I spend abundantly. But does he think that no one has seen him? Allah knows and Allah will hold him to account for every single penny that he spent. Where did he spend it? How did he spend it? For what purpose? For what motive? And how did he acquire it in the first place? We may not think much of this. The halal income shapes a person's life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Holy Quran, يَا أَيُّهَا الرُّسُلُ قُلُوا مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ وَعْمَلُوا صَالِحًا O messengers, Allah addresses not mankind, but He addresses only the messengers. يَا أَيُّهَا الرُّسُلُ قُلُوا مِنَ الطَّيِّبَاتِ O messengers, eat of the pure things. وَعْمَلُوا صَالِحًا And do good. Do good deeds. There's a connection between the two parts. Before telling the prophets and the messengers of Allah to do good, Allah tells them to eat of the pure and halal things. Of the pure and good things. Why? Halal consumption leads to halal deeds. Pure consumption leads to pure deeds. Impure consumption leads to sin and iniquity. Haram consumption leads to haram. Halal can only come from halal. Pure can only come from pure. Haram will come from Hama. 
So not only will we, will we be questioned about how we spent our wealth, and there's also another secret of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in His creation, which is generally observed, that you will notice the halal income tends to be spent in halal too. And haram income tends to find its way to haram. There's a, there's a rule. There's a pattern. Halal not only leads to halal deeds, but also leads to halal expenditure. And haram not only leads to haram deeds, but it leads to haram expenditure. And there is no barakah in haram. All the barakah is in halal. My father, rahmatullahi alayhi, there's one way of explaining it with hadith and Qur'an. And my father, rahmatullahi alayhi, when he passed away last year, he gave a very beautiful example. And this was in the last few words of advice that he gave to some young people outside the house, returning from salah. And my father, rahmatullahi alayhi, was a great scholar in his own right. But he had this ability to converse with anybody and to explain to them. So one can argue all this from the Qur'an and hadith, when my father had a very unique way of explaining things. And when he gave this example, great ulama heard this, the recording, and they said, subhanallah, all in our entire lives we've been teaching Qur'an and hadith, and we've been speaking about halal and haram, but we never thought of it in this manner. And my father said to someone, that halal brings about halal, there's barakah in halal, there's no barakah in haram. So he said to the young lads, tell me, it's haram to eat a dog, isn't it? Yes. Do people eat dogs in general? No. Because meat is haram. Sheep. Lambs, halal, aren't they? Yes. Now, how many puppies does a dog have? One? Or does it have a full litter? It has a full litter. How many lambs are born to one ewe? How many? One. Not many, just one per year. And yet a dog has... Many litters of pups, puppies. So, if you were to look at that number, just by that number alone, we should be seeing and witnessing millions and hundreds of millions of dogs. Just like rabbits and rats. And by that calculation, there should be very few lambs. Just by that calculation alone. And yet on top of that, no one eats dogs, but everybody eats meat, especially Muslims. So, so my father said, Subhan, do you know why? Despite the birth of so many litter, so many litters of pups, on the one hand, and the birth of just one lamb, why is it, and on top of that, Muslims, well, people eat meat and lambs, and no one eats dogs. And yet, 
Wherever you see, there's an abundance of lambs. You ever see a shortage? And yet, where do you see the dogs? And he says, do you know why? He said, because that's halal, that's haram, and this is halal. There's barakah in halal, there's no barakah in haram. I related it because it's just a very crude and simple way. Without Qur'an and hadith, that's something to reflect on. So, Allah Azza wa says that, does he think, he spent a lot, he says I've spent wealth abundantly, but does he think no one's seen him? Allah watches, Allah knows, and Allah will question us on the day of judgment. As I just related from the hadith of Tirmidhi, from both Sayyidina Abu Barzah al-Aslami radiyallahu an, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu an, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, a man's feet will remain firmly planted and will not shift from their spot on the day of reckoning until he has been questioned about four things. And one of those, the third is, his wealth, where did he acquire it? From and how did he dispense of it and how did he dispose of it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, Alam naj'allahu aynain. Allah then reminds us of Allah's favor to us. Alam naj'allahu aynain. Wa lisanan wa shafatain. Wa hadaynahun najdain. Having spoken about man and having sworn by man, by the parents and the offspring, and told us about the reality of our life, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, why do you live your life in that manner? Seeking bliss and paradise on earth when life is a struggle. Spending wealth in this manner to secure what you want in this world when you can never get it. We can't buy Jannah on earth. We just can't. We can't buy immortality. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, why live your life in that manner? Look at yourself. Allah then tells us of his favors to us. أَلَمْ نَجْعَلْ لَهُ وَشَفَتَيْنِ Have we not made for him, meaning for man, Two eyes and a tongue and two lips. And have you not shown him the two clear paths? Najd, it says Najdain. Najd is a path which is actually quite high up. So not the beaten track, but a raised path which is very clear and visible to everybody. It's not hidden. That's why I translated it as. And we have guided him to the two clear paths. So go back to the beginning of the three sentences. Allah says, have we not given him two eyes? Allahu Akbar. The purpose of mentioning these three things is to make us reflect on our ingratitude to Allah. Kufr. Kufr which we term disbelief, originally doesn't mean disbelief, as I've explained on numerous occasions. It means to conceal. It means to hide. This is why in Arabic, the night is called kafir, the thing that hides. People have used the word kafir to refer to the cloud because it conceals. And most famously, as Allah Himself says in the Quran, 
Like rain whose vegetation pleases thee. Kuffar, meaning plural of kafir, meaning the farmers. A farmer is called a kafir. Why? The night is called, can be called kafir. Something that conceals is called a kafir like the cloud. A farmer is definitely called a kafir as Allah calls him in the Quran. Kuffar. Here it means the farmers. Why is a farmer called a kafir? Because the farmer hides the seed. He conceals the seed. So kufr originally means simply to conceal. And I mentioned it before. Languages are closely related. Wouldn't you say wow and fa are very close? Wa and fa? We say Volkswagen. And it's a German car. And the Germans pronounce it as Volkswagen. So, v, W, V, and F are all very similar. So, I'll just leave you with this one note. Kuf means to cover. Look at the words. Take out the vowels. Take out the vowels and leave only the consonants. So, from cover, take out the O and take out the E. Take out the O and E. What are you left with? Because that's how Arabic is. You have the root letters, and we, they no, we normally disregard the vowels in the Arabic. Cover. That's what kafar means. Kufr means to cover. So, now why do we call kufr? Why did ultimately, through many stages, why is kufr regarded as disbelief? Why is disbelief regarded as kufr? Because a person, in, in Arabic, another meaning of kufr is ingratitude. Kufran means ingratitude. Allah says in the Quran, Inna, doesn't he say later on, we guided him to two paths. Allah says in another verse of the Quran, Indeed, verily, we guided him to the path. Therefore, he is either grateful or extremely ungrateful. So, kufr in Arabic means ingratitude too. So, why? How did this come to mean disbelief? Is because the greatest act of in one of the means of ingratitude is to use something and to employ something for a purpose for which it's not intended. If you give someone a pen as a gift in the hope that the person will remember you every time they write and use it, and the person in front of you throws it in the bin, that's an insult. Far from creating and engendering love, it'll create hatred, it'll breed hatred. Because it's... It's an act of extreme ingratitude, and not only that, it's an insult. So, in Islam, one of the meanings of kufr is disbelief, because disbelief comes from ingratitude. And ingratitude is someone who is ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the gift of life, for the gift of being, for the gift of existence, for the gift of the body, for the gift of the senses and the faculties, for the gift of power. And strength, in the human sense. 
Allah has given us all of these faculties, these organs, these limbs, this life, and we are abusing them. We are squandering them. We are throwing them away. We are casting them aside. And not only that, we are insulting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by employing His gifts in purposes for which they were never intended. And instead of employing them in his obedience, we employ his gifts in his disobedience. That is rebellion. That is extreme ingratitude. That's an insult. This is why kufr is called kufr. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us of this. And the first thing he reminds us of is our eyes. أَلَمْ نَجْعَلْ لَهُ عَيْنَيْنِ Did we not make for him his two eyes? We may not think much of these. But subhanAllah. Ask those who can't see. Ask those who are blind. Ask those who are f- who have failing eyesight. These are extremely delicate. In the hadith they have been referred to as karimatain. The two honored and noble things. The two beloved things. That's why in a hadith Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I do not take away the karimatain, the beloved two noble things of a man, of my servant, which is these two eyes. And then he remains patient over that deprivation, except that I will reward him with nothing else but jannah. Ask those who are failing eyesight, weak eyesight, or those who have become blind after being able to see, or ask those who have never been able to see. How great the gift of sight is. How amazing and wonderful this eyeball is. Allahu Akbar. And how vulnerable it is. Do you know how vulnerable the eye is? One little thing could damage it and harm it. Probably one of the most vulnerable things. We can take blows and uh, cuts and bruises and wounds on virtually every other part of the body. Someone can, we, we can be hit over the head, but hopefully the skull will protect the brain. But for the eyes, we only have the eyelids and the eyelashes. Themselves barely capable. Leaving the eye extremely vulnerable. And yet this is with, these are the organs with which we see. These are the ones exposed. Anything could be inserted into the eye. Anything could be poked into the eye. Any projectile could land on any one of the eyes. Just the thought of it makes you wince. And yet, through the mercy of Allah, most of us survive without any injury to the eye. And yet it's such a complex and delicate and vulnerable organ. This is so vulnerable, we just stare at the sun for longer than we should and we can damage our eyes. And the vessels and the complex nature of the eye and its ability and the signals and the optical nerve and how the brain communicates with the eye and vice versa, it's a true wonder. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, have we not given him two eyes? Have we not made two eyes for him? And yet, what does he do with his eyes? He looks at what he shouldn't be. He ogles at what's haram. 
He stares at what's haram. He employs his eyes not in the obedience of Allah, but in the disobedience of Allah. I won't say much more about that than to quote a beautiful verse of the Qur'an. Allah says, يَعْلَمُ خَائِنَةَ الْأَعْيُنِ وَمَا تُخْفِ الصُّدُورِ وَاللَّهُ يَبْضِي بِالْحَقِّ Allah says, He, Allah, knows the treachery of the eyes and what the hearts conceal. And Allah judges with the truth. Allah knows the treachery of the eyes. And what's the meaning of umar tukhfi sudur? If someone catches us ogling at something we shouldn't be, and we momentarily stop, we still lust with the eyes of the heart. So Allah says, Others may not be able to see your treachery, of the heart, but Allah knows what the hearts conceal. And Allah judges by the truth. So Allah has given us these grimatain, these two beautiful organs of the body. How do we employ them? In his obedience or disobedience? Then Allah says, وَلِسَانًا وَشَفَتَيْنِ And we have given him a tongue and two lips. There's a wisdom in that too. We have... First of all, let me speak about how beautiful and powerful the tongue is. We don't just have a tongue to eat and to taste. Allah has given us the tongue to speak. And this faculty of speech, the power of speech, is a, is a wonder in itself. In the entire creation. Speaking of eyes, human beings are the only animals, all animals... Even birds, even insects have eyes. But human beings are the only animals, or the human beings are the only species that have whites in the eyes. One. Two. All animals have tongues. Insects have tongues. And yet, we, and we have a tongue. And of all the animals... Birds, beasts, fish, apes, primates, mammals, all the species and the subspecies in the entire creation of Allah, all these millions of species, only one species has the power of speech. And it's just one gene. And that gene is to be found, Fox P2. That gene is to be found in other animals. And yet, and the FOXP2 gene is a controlling regulatory gene. It doesn't do so much itself as much as it manages other genes. So this one single FOXP2 gene is to be found in other animals, other species too. And yet, only in human beings does the FOXP2 gene work in the way that it does, regulates other genes too, and combining all of these genes, does it give man the ability and the power to speak, unique amongst the whole creation of Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and this is what brings the words into focus, Ar-Rahman, Allama al-Qur'an, Khalaq al-Insan, Allamahu al-Bayan. Ar-Rahman, the compassionate. He taught the Qur'an. خلق insan. He created man. علمه bayan. He taught him speech. That's, that, that's where this fits in. Because if you look at those words of Ar-Rahman, 
Allah then says, الشمس والقمر بحسبان The sun and the moon are by calculation. So it's amazing, in these few verses, Allah speaks about Himself, Ar-Rahman. Allah speaks about His compassion, His compassionate nature, His compassionate being. Allah speaks about the Qur'an. Allah speaks about the sun and the moon being by precise calculation, their orbits, their movements, their synchrony. Allah speaks about the expanse of the heavens and the balance and scales and the equilibrium in the universe. Allah speaks about all of these great things. And in between, Allah also tells us, Allah speaks about the creation of man, and then He mentions just one thing. He taught him speech. But that's magnificent. And the, these tongues, these languages... And this is why in a verse of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ خَلْقُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَاخْتِلَافُ أَلْسِنَتِكُمْ وَأَلْوَانِكُمْ And amongst his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and your differing complexions and your differing tongues. Allah mentions these things side by side. So he tells us about the creation of the heavens and the earth and our languages in one verse. All of this is a sign of Allah. Our languages are a sign of Allah. Our power of speech is a sign of Allah. And it's a great gift of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A truly great gift. That's why Allah says, وَلِسَانَ We gave him a tongue. This is what's meant. Not just the ability to taste and to eat. A tongue to speak. But yes, we gave him one tongue, but we gave him two lips to keep it closed. Two lips. One tongue, but two lips. And that controls the tongue. The lips are the lids. They are the seal. And we need to try and ensure that we keep it sealed more often. And that's a topic in itself, silence. Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi relates a hadith from Sayyidina Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu anhu. It's a very long hadith, we don't have time. He says... I asked the Prophet ﷺ, O Prophet of Allah, guide me to a deed which will take me close to Jannah and distance me from the hellfire. The Prophet ﷺ said, you have asked for an immense thing, a great thing. And then the Prophet ﷺ mentioned a number of things. Faith, salah, zakah, Hajj, fasting, the Hajjud Salah at night, rising and abandoning, shunning sleep in order to pray the Hajjud Salah. He mentioned all of these things. Then finally, he mentioned the one thing which was the base and the foundation, the backbone. Something which is probably more important than all of these things. In, in a way, Prophet ﷺ told Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu an, guard your tongue. So Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu an was surprised. Prophet ﷺ said, O Messenger of Allah, will we be taken to task? Will we be held to account for what our tongues utter? 
The Prophet sallallahu said, That is there anything else that throws people flat on their faces in the fire except the harvest of their tongues? The word he used was harvest. Because when we speak, this is what we do. It's like we're just chopping through vegetation. We're just gathering good and bad, wet and dry, right and wrong. And we reap what we sow. And ultimately, he, he referred and he likened our speech and the effect and the trails of our tongue as our harvest. This is our harvest and this is what we will eat. This is what we will consume. This is what we will be rewarded with. And he said, O is there anything else which flings people flat on their faces in the fire except the harvest of their tongues? Uqbut ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ya Rasulullah, man najah, what is salvation? I seek salvation. I want to be saved. What is salvation? Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Amsik alayka lisanak wal yisa'ka baytuk wabki ala khatiyatik. Withhold your tongue and let your hunger confine you and weep over your sins. That is salvation. And in a famous hadith later by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and others, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is part of a longer hadith we don't have time. He said, مَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيَقُلْ خَيْرًا أَوْ لِيَسْمَطْ Whoever believes in Allah and in the final, in the, whoever believes in Allah and in the final day, then he should either say something good, otherwise remain silent. Good speech. I spoke earlier on about good speech, pure things leading to pure deeds, pure halal consumption leading to halal deeds. That's the case with deeds as well. There's a whole law, there's a whole system, there's a whole ecosystem of deeds. Pure income leads to pure deeds. Haram income leads to haram expenditure and haram deeds. And certain deeds lead to certain kinds of deeds. And do you know what? The tongue leads to the deeds of the body. Again, Imam Tirmidhi rahmatullahi relates in a hadith that the Prophet said each morning the organs of the body, the limbs, they plead with the tongue. And they actually say to the tongue, they say, O oh, tongue, fear Allah in relation to us because we are as you are. If you are straight, we are straight. And if you are bent, we are bent. It's a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Every morning the organs, the limbs of the body plead with the tongue. And they say, fear Allah in relation to us. For if you are straight, we are as you are. If you are straight, we are straight. If you are bent, we are bent. Good speech leads to good deeds. Straight speech leads to straight deeds. Bent speech leads to bent deeds and terrible speech, evil speech leads to terror and evil. And Allah mentions that in the verse in a verse of the Quran. Allah says Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu attaqullah wa qulu qawlan sadeeda yuslih lakum a'malakum wa yaghfir lakum dhunubakum O believers, fear Allah 
And say an upright word. What will Allah do if you say an upright word? Allah will make good your deeds and forgive you your sins. So good speech leads to good deeds. And evil speech leads to evil deeds. The tongue has immense power. It wields immense power, this boneless wonder. There's no bone, the tongue. And yet it's got more power than even the most sturdiest of bodies. The, this tongue, this boneless wonder, it has imme- wields immense disproportionate power over people, over lives, and even over ourselves. One word can lead a person to Jannah. One word can lead a person to Jahannam. That's, a, that's actually the meaning of a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Allah has given us a tongue, the power of speech, two lips, and we have shown him, we have guided him to the two clear paths. How is that to be understood? Meaning Allah has given us eyes, tongue, lips, and we have shown him the two paths. Allah has given us a brain, Allah has given us a mind, Allah has given us consciousness and intelligence. Allah has given us the ability to distinguish between truth and falsehood, right and wrong, good and bad. And there's something even beyond the mind and the brain, which is our spirit, which is the ultimate arbitrator, the ultimate arbiter. It's in our nature, the recognition of good, and the distinction between truth and falsehood is actually in our DNA. It's part of our fitrah, it's part of our being. That's why Allah says in Surah Al-Shams, which we covered last month, by the soul, and by that Allah who fashioned and perfected the soul, and then He inspired it to its taqwa, its fear of Allah and its God consciousness, and He also inspired it to its sin. And in that other verse which I mentioned earlier, Indeed, we have guided him to the path, therefore he is now either grateful or extremely ungrateful. And here, and we have guided him to the two clear paths. We have eyes, we have a tongue, the power of speech, the power of sight, the power of thought, consciousness, intelligence. Man has been blessed with higher intelligence. And Allah has also blessed us, not just with consciousness, but a conscience. The ability, the innate, intrinsic, natural ability to distinguish between good and bad, truth and falsehood. No other species, no other animal shares that high intelligence or that innate consciousness with us. No one. These are all gifts of Allah, but how do we employ them? How do we use them? Allah then says, so what should man do? In what should he employ these things? So why does he scale the, the ascent? Why doesn't he scale the difficult path? Aqaba refers to A difficult path in the mountain. And normally it takes great, a great struggle to pass through that path or to ascend it. So it's an uphill struggle, it's an uphill task. The Aqaba. 
This is why Allah says, So why doesn't He attempt or scale the ascent? But actually means to charge or to forcibly push oneself through a difficult and narrow path or to throw oneself in the ranks. This is the meaning of iqtiham, to charge, to throw oneself. So what Allah says is that why doesn't man throw himself into the task of good, into the task of climbing the difficult ascent? And what is the aqab? So what is that ascent? What is that narrow, difficult, impassable path of the mountain which Allah tells us to struggle against, to throw ourselves at, Proceed through and come out successfully on the other side. What is the aqaba? So Allah says, وَمَا أَدْرَاكُمَ الْعَقَبَةِ And who will tell you what the aqaba is, what the ascent is? Allah tells us. What will inform you of what the aqaba is? Allah tells us. And the, what Allah says is just three things. فَكُّ رَقَبَةِ Well, a few things. One, فَكُّ رَقَبَةِ The freeing, the emancipation of slaves. Remember, this was in Makkah al-Mukarramah. And there, slavery was not just practice, but people lived in bondage and slavery. So the Prophet ﷺ encouraged people to free and emancipate slaves. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an was one of them who would free slaves for the sake of Allah. The Prophet ﷺ did that. It remained one of the chief instructions and lessons of Islam in that society. There are so many deeds for which the Prophet ﷺ says, in order to compensate for that, Allah says in the Qur'an, in order to compensate for that misdeed, free slaves, emancipate slaves. And the freedom of, from slavery, and emancipating and freeing people from slavery, isn't just the physical bondage of purchase, it's all manner and all kinds of subjugation and exploitation and Slavery of the psychological, physical, economic sense. Every type of political, economic subjugation and exploitation is a form of slavery. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that it's a great deed to help and to assist in freeing slaves. And prisoners, those who are unlawfully imprisoned. Or this is one act of aqaba. The other act of aqaba, meaning the scale, scaling the height, scaling the ascent, is or feeding people in a day of extreme hunger. To feed people who are needy is part of the great charity of Islam. And there are many verses of the Qur'an that attest to that, many ahadith. And the action of the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba anhum, speaking of slavery, and we regard slavery to be in all its forms. Rasulullah ﷺ says in a hadith, related by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and others, that whoever frees a slave, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will free every limb of his, for every limb that he has freed, in, on earth, Allah will free every limb of his in compensation from the fire of Jahannam. <laughs> Feeding who? Feeding an orphan of relation. 
That means an orphan, especially who is a relative, someone who is close. The Prophet ﷺ was an orphan. He loved orphans. He taught compassion to orphans. The Qur'an emphasizes the rights of orphans, even in a lawless, lawless society such as that of Mecca and Arabia at the time. And the Prophet ﷺ has told us that whoever looks after and cares for and becomes a custodian of an orphan, he and I shall be together in Jannah like this. And the Prophet ﷺ brought together his fingers. He will be with Rasulullah ﷺ in Jannah. There are many rewards and virtues of feeding orphans. And maybe again, I'll expand on that on another occasion. But one important thing here, Allah says, an orphan of relation. In many verses of the Qur'an, Allah emphasizes blood relations, the rights of kin and family. In Surah Al-Baqarah, in one of the verses, even before the virtue and the obligation of zakah, obligatory zakah, Allah speaks about the virtue and the reward and the merit of spending on one's relatives. Family relations, honoring the ties of kin and blood, are very important in Islam. And that means not just by greeting and visiting, but actually by helping and assisting. This is why Allah doesn't just say orphan. Allah says, or an orphan of relations. Someone who is an orphan as well as being a relative. Or feeding an orphan of dust. And the meaning of dust, sorry, not an orphan, feeding a destitute poor person of the dust. If someone becomes so needy, so helpless, so victimized, and so impoverished and hungry, that they are actually lying on the ground, on the road. And therefore they are eating the dust, sleeping in the dust, meeting the dust. They are covered in dust. Rasul Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O miskinan dhamatraba, or feeding a, a, a poor person, a destitute of the dust. These are, they may not seem much, subhanAllah, they may not seem much. But Allah says, to avoid the corruption of all that Allah has spoken of before. To truly worship Allah and to be grateful to Him. To pay thanks to Allah and to show gratitude for the gifts of sight of speech, of intelligence, of consciousness, of conscience. Allah says, why doesn't man scale the ascent? Why doesn't he throw himself into the task of virtue? So what is the ascent? What is the virtue that Allah wants us to attempt? And here Allah mentions these three things. First of all, freeing of slaves, and freeing people from slavery, bondage and imprisonment, and Two, looking after the orphan and feeding the orphan, looking after the orphan, caring and catering for the orphan and feeding, looking after an impoverished poor person. They may not seem much, but these are great deeds in the sight of Allah. And then Allah says, Then he is one of those who have believed and who have counseled and encouraged one another to patience and to compassion and mercy. Three things here. One, it's not sufficient to be good oneself. That's important, that's primary thing. It's not sufficient, but it's not sufficient. 
Good comes out of being good oneself and encouraging others to be good. To remind others to be good. And this is attested to throughout the Qur'an. Allah says, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ By time, indeed man is in a state of loss. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ Except for those who believe and do good deeds, but just do good deeds themselves. وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْا بِالصَّبْرِ And they encourage and counsel one another to patience and to the truth. Individual piety is good, but ultimately it's not sufficient. This is why even in Surah Al-Shams, which we covered last month, see in the beginning of the Surah, Allah speaks about the soul. Allah swears by many things, and Allah speaks about the soul. And then straight after speaking about the soul, it's virtue, it's corruption. The flourishing of the soul, it's withering and death. Straight after that, the next section is, Allah speaks about, The people of Thamud, they rejected because of their transgression. So what's the connection? The connection is very subtle, it's very delicate, but it's there. The connection is, that if a person does not become pious individually, then ultimately people overall will be corrupt. And the corruption of society is detrimental. It leads to their destruction ultimately. And to their downfall, collective downfall. So here too, and in other places of the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala emphasizes the point that individual piety and virtue are necessary, but they are not sufficient. This is why in Islam, we have the concept of being good ourselves and encouraging others to good. Being good ourselves and enjoining the good. Avoiding and refraining from evil and sin and discouraging others and dissuading them and preventing them from evil and sin too. This is why Allah says here, then he is one of those who have believed what the sabr and who along with others encourage others to patience. And what the and who encourage one another and counsel one another to compassion and mercy. Compassion and mercy are vital. This is ultimately what distinguishes us from beasts and animals. In fact, in many instances, animals tend to show more mercy than, and compassion than some of us do. Different animals of different species look after each other. Subhanallah. And yet we, mercy is the basis of everything. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls himself Ar-Rahim, Ar-Rahman. And in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari, and Imam Muslim, Rahmatullahi alayhima, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, La yarhamullahu man la yarhamun nas. Allah, has no mer- Allah shows no mercy to one who shows no mercy to the people. He who is not merciful to the people, Allah is not merciful to him. And in the hadith related by Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As radiyallahu anhuma, related by Imam Abu Dawood in his sunan, and Imam Tirmidhi in his sunan, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, and this is normally the first hadith we hear from our teachers. Ar-Rahimuna yarhamuhumur rahman Irhamu man fil ard, yarhamkum man fil sama. Ar-Rahimun, the merciful and compassionate ones, the merciful and compassionate is merciful to them. Irhamu man fil ard. Be merciful to those who are on earth. Irhamkum man fil sama. He who is in the heavens will be merciful to you. 
and in a hadith, again related by Imam Tirmidhi and, and Imam Abu Dawood in their sunnah, from the same companion, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, whoever is, whoever is not compassionate and merciful to the young amongst us, and does not recognize the worth and the standing of the elders amongst us, then he is not one of us. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah bless us with the knowledge and the understanding of the Qur'an and the ability to act on its teachings. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum wa bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.